Welcome to On Pump. It's the podcast that keeps you updated with the latest and greatest in the world of perfusion. I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're On Pump. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Liv Birch, a leading entrepreneur and professional in the field of perfusion. She's also the author of the groundbreaking book, Beating Heart, Your Complete Guide to Perfusion Education and Success, which is currently available for $19.99. Welcome to the show, Liv. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Yay, we're so excited to have you. So Liv, before we delve into your book, I'd love for our listeners to get to know you a bit better. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Yeah, of course. So my journey into perfusion led me to MUSC for my education. I now work as a perfusionist in Philadelphia at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. I've been there since I graduated in 2020 with our girl Mel here, of course. And um, beyond my clinical work, I authored Beating Heart, and I operate the site LiveProfusion.com. Factoid here is that Liv and I were two out of, what was it, 24 or 25 students? We definitely had a unique experience over at MUSC, but I'm so happy to get her on the podcast now. So cool that you guys were classmates. I love that. Can you share with us what initially drew you to the unique profession of perfusion? Yeah, it's a great question. While I was in college, I was on the kind of pre-med track. So I had all the basic science prerequisites covered, but I had no definitive career direction. And during my junior year, I incidentally crossed paths with a perfusionist at a job fair of all places. They had the table set up and a little sign that said perfusionist. I thought, I don't know what that is, wandered on up. I was intrigued by it and I seized the opportunity to shadow a few cases those experiences left me with an unforgettable impression of unveiling the profound impact perfusionists have on patients. And I was instantly hooked. That's awesome. I always love hearing everyone's unique story of how they enter the perfusion profession. There's always an interesting aspect of how they learned about the profession. So can you tell us more about how you knew that perfusion was the right path for you? Yeah, of course. What struck me most during my clinical observations was the magnitude of the impact perfusionists have on patient outcomes and the intricate role they play in cardiac surgeries. Witnessing the dynamic blend of science, tech, and human care in their work resonated deeply with my passion for excellence in healthcare. Both my parents and my brother work in healthcare, and I feel like that laid a foundation for me to really appreciate the critical nature of medical care. So I think ultimately it was the combination of personal exposure and a family context steep in healthcare that led me to dedicate myself to this field. Mel and I both read your book, and in your book you did talk about passion for cardiac surgery. Can you tell us what you love most about your current work as a perfusionist? Oh, yeah, I love that question. What captivates me is the pivotal role we play in safeguarding the physiological stability of patients undergoing cardiac surgery. This profession demands a profound understanding of cardiovascular physiology, a mastery of cutting edge technology, and just an unwavering commitment to patient well-being. Witnessing the intricate interplay between medical expertise and technological innovation and its tangible impact on patient outcomes, I find that genuinely gratifying. But beyond the technical aspects, the human connection forged through patient interactions adds an important dimension to my work. Being a part of a patient's journey toward recovery, providing the critical support necessary for successful surgeries, and contributing to the restoration of health is a privilege that I hold in very high regard. The sense of fulfillment derived from knowing that my expertise and my work that today 
contributes to the betterment of lives is without a doubt, probably that's the most moving aspect for me of what we do. Yeah, I love that at the forefront of your mentality for perfusion is always doing it for the patients. I think a critical component that's intangible to being a perfusionist is having the courage to look a surgeon in the eye and say, yeah, let's do this. I'll drain the patient of their blood. I'm going to circulate it through plastic equipment. I'm going to keep them alive while you do your thing. And you don't have to worry about me at all back here. And having the skill set to match that, I think that genuinely makes a perfusionist a very interesting sort of person in the background that is drawn to do that kind of work. There's such a small margin of error to what we do and we show up and we do it on a daily basis and we usually hit that metric. That's a great point, Mel. That leads me into my next question. So I know being a perfusionist comes with its unique set of challenges. Liv, what would you say has been the most challenging yet rewarding experience you've had as a perfusionist so far? Thanks, Tiff. That's a great question. I've thought about this a lot, and I think one of the most challenging yet rewarding experiences occurred when I had the privilege of overseeing the ECMO support and subsequent lung transplantation for a young patient. This individual presented with severe hypoxia, appearing cyanotic and facing a critical condition. Over the course of several months on VV ECMO in the ICU, the patient's condition remained unstable until a suitable donor became available. And the dual challenge in this scenario was not only the complexity of managing the patient's ECMO support, but for me, it was developing a connection with the patient and their family during this critical period in their lives, witnessing the patient's struggle and forming a bond with them and their loved ones added an emotional aspect to the professional challenges inherent in our profession. In the end, the patient received a beautiful new set of lungs and emerged from the ordeal with second chance at life. And that just epitomized the rewarding aspect of our work. Um, This experience for me stands as a testament to the transformative power of perfusion and the unique position we hold in life-saving interventions for those in need. Yeah, that's an incredible story. We do have a unique scope of practice in our profession. So is there something you wish you had known about the profession before pursuing it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, One key realization for me was the dynamic nature of the role. We're integral members of the healthcare team operating the heart-lung machine during cardiac surgeries, yet the scope of our practice extends well beyond the OR. Understanding the interdisciplinary nature of the profession and its impact on patient outcomes is crucial, from collaborating with surgeons and anesthesiologists, as Mel mentioned, to maintaining expertise in emerging technologies, Perfusion demands not only technical proficiency, but also effective communication and adaptability. I also think gaining insight into the lifestyle associated with this career is essential. While definitely rewarding the demanding nature of surgical schedules, being on call, working overnights, holidays, the requirement for continuous education to stay up to date with advancements. These are all aspects that require commitment to lifelong learning and definitely having a growth mindset. I completely agree. We want to shift our focus to your book, Beating Heart. Can you tell our listeners what inspired you to write this comprehensive guide to perfusion education and success? I believe it is the first book of its kind. Way to find your niche. Thank you so much. So for me, Beating Heart was born out of a commitment to just completely demystify the journey of entering perfusion. I recognize the scarcity of accessible resources guiding aspiring perfusionists through the admissions process. And my motivation stems from a genuine desire to contribute to the growth and accessibility of perfusion. 
That's incredible. And another little fun fact too, you know, Liv, I'd love to have you talk about ad hoc here on your role at MUSC as I don't remember the name of the position that you held, but I remember that you were one of the few individuals who would take prospective candidates and give them a tour of our our department, our division at MUSC, answer questions for them. You were kind of that point of contact for prospective candidates. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I'm so glad you remember that. I was an admissions ambassador along with two of our other classmates. And I just love interacting with people, getting to know people, but more than anything, just being able to, maybe I have a morsel of knowledge that can help them put them on the right path towards perfusion, giving tours, showing people around. For me, the most important aspect was always sharing what it's like day to day. I had no idea what perfusion school was going to be like until week one. And it was like a hard learning curve. So if I could just share that kind of insight to people now, that's really where the focus of the book came from. Just, I wish I had this book when I was applying to school. I think it would have saved me a lot of time (laughs) because I, at one point, I didn't know if I was actually going to finish my application because I was so confused. Um, So to be able to, if this book can help one person navigate that process a little more smoothly than I did, that's perfectly great with me. I really appreciate that. You know how you said that you had wished you had this and you didn't know what perfusion school was going to be like until week one. And I think for me, I didn't realize what I had gotten myself into until that first pathophysiology class. And I remember I bombed that test. I did so bad on my first pathophysiology test that I went out and I ran three miles and called my mom like crying like a five-year-old. Like, I think I picked the wrong profession. What if Mm -hmm. I can't do this? What if I can't keep up? And I remember that it was just another rung on a ladder of obstacles. And I, I put my head down and I tried my best for the rest of that class. And I came out with the grades that I needed to get out of that course. Of course, I put myself in a really tough spot with a really small margin of error, but in a way I kind of gave myself the gauntlet right at the beginning on how perfusion is. And it doesn't get easier. We just keep building skill sets that help us get over those hurdles a little bit faster as we go deeper into our profession. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, I definitely do. Thank you for sharing that. During that first semester, I had some points where I didn't know if I was going to be able to continue the program I remember one conversation with my dad and he said, this is two years of hard work. This is two years. Keep your head down. You're going to get through it. And then you're good. And I graduated perfusion school and I was like, oh, all the work's done. (laughs) (laughs) And then I realized there's still so much on the job work that just school cannot teach you. And as you mentioned, Mel, like this, you learn something new every day and I'm blessed for that. And it just really keeps you humble. And that's something that I really appreciate about our field. That's incredible. I'm glad that you shared that too. It's not easy to get on a podcast and bear all sometimes, but I feel the transparency component of it is so important for the listeners and the prospective candidates and people in the field because the journey is not easy. It's not a well-known profession. There's very few resources available. I wish this book had been available when I was back in the beginning. It would have helped me so much. And it was so eloquently written too, not precluding the content. The content is is impeccable, but the way that you write also, the words leap off the page and it's easy to just keep going into it and not take your eyes off the pages until you're done with the book. I think I finished it in like two days or something like that. Um, but my heart really skipped a beat <laughs> when the baby bookmark with the QR code slipped out from in between the pages. I loved it. 
Oh, Mel, thank you so much for your gracious words. I'm so happy you've enjoyed the book. And I love that the mini bookmark caught your attention. I want to do something <laughs> different than a business card. And I like to think small details can make a significant impact as like small decisions we make on a daily basis in the OR can have a big impact. The bookmark was just a little thoughtful touch that I thought could enhance the overall experience for the readers. I really wish this existed when I was looking into perfusion school. Um, for me, my journey started from my undergrad, and then I just continued right on to perfusion school. I didn't quite know what I was getting into other than I had some um, happenstance networking opportunities that led me to the OR and then led me to see a perfusionist. But the quality of content in your book is just so helpful. Uh, I can't tell you how many LinkedIn messages I get from aspiring students or people in perfusion already. You basically have answered all of their questions in this book. And I I just want to say, see Liv Birch's book, <laughs> Beating Heart, because <laughs> that just makes it easier for me because the quality of your content, again, is amazing. So how long did it take you to write this book? I think it took me about a year. I didn't sit down one day and say, I'm going to write a book today. It was, it really, it started off, I was going to write like a blog post about it. And then I just started writing a Word document and writing it, writing, writing. It ended up, I looked at it one day and it was 10,000 words. And I thought, well, this isn't a, this isn't a blog post. And then I thought it doesn't really look like a website either format wise, because I want it to be all like tangible in one spot and organized and like kind of almost like systematic. And I thought, hey, why don't I try and make like a brochure pamphlet? Then the word book came up because I just kept writing and I had over 30,000 words. So I ended up tailoring it down, spent a lot of time organizing it in a way I thought would make sense to a reader. I wrote this for someone. I wrote this for myself <laughs> five years ago when I didn't know the anatomy of the heart. <laughs> so and I just thought, how would I like to learn this? How do I progress through that? So about a year and then I started the website too. And I'm just loving interacting with people now and just giving back to the field. I loved the opening quote. I mean, I just, I have to bring it up because I really loved it. That Thomas Jefferson quote, I find the harder I work, the more luck I seem to have. How long have you known about that quote or known of that quote? What's the story here? I'm not sure if there's a direct story to that quote, but I've always loved quotes and Mel, it makes me think of when we were in perfusion school and we got an email every morning from now Dr. David Fitzgerald, and it had a motivating quote for the day to keep us feeling motivated in our work. And just, I feel like quotes just kind of set the tone and kind of ground you to the aspect of the subject. And I think this quote, I'm not sure how it, when I came across it, but it really emphasizes the strong worth ethic and determination required in this field. No, I totally agree. I think the quote is so definitive of perfusion. And even more so, I wish I could go back and tell Thomas Jefferson, the more you work, the more the devil is in the details to me. Mm. But that quote is probably better without my ad hoc. <laughs> I love it. I love the ad. It's really interesting, though, because Mel had posted a story for us on our On Pump Instagram page. And I had a friend reach out to me. I think the picture immediately caught her attention. She's like, oh, I see a quote from Thomas Jefferson. That's one of my favorite quotes. I definitely have to give this book a read. Um, and she is a respiratory therapist and um, has a lot of interest in perfusion, does a lot of collaboration with perfusionists. Um, so it's just interesting who you engage just with the first few pages of your book. 
So well done. <laughs> oh, thank you um, so much for sharing that too. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine how many questions you're receiving from people as this comes out. So we know that Beating Heart is already an undoubtedly a valuable resource for aspiring perfusionists. Could you give us a glimpse of what perfusionists can expect to find in your book? Yeah, of course. So readers can anticipate a systematic exploration of what I think are the essential facets of pursuing a career in perfusion. The book delves into the acquired foundational knowledge, offering insights that cater to individuals, really regardless of how familiar or not they are with the field, from an in-depth examination of perfusion to strategic approaches for academic excellence. I think Beating Heart provides what I think of as a field guide for navigating the admissions process. Just one day you're getting ready for your interview the day before, you can flip to that chapter, run through some practice questions. You can really just pick it up, flip to a sections and get more detail on that. Or you can go like Mel straight from front to back with all the highlighting. I love it. Oh, the highlighting was essential. I had to bring out the highlighters. Had to be hot pink too. <laughs> She also gave us a coupon code. So Liv gave us a coupon code. So for whoever is listening, it's going to be down in the notes for the episode. It's abundantly clear on the Instagram page too. But for those who are like already on it, it's 15% off. And at the checkout, you just write on pump for the coupon code. Yeah, thanks, Mel. I'm so excited to share these resources with your listeners. I also kind of have a surprise. I just found out today that I could go on through Spotify for podcasters and enter a a Q&A, like a poll, if there's a question we all want to come up with and ask the audience, we can even form it in our brains on this episode. And I can write it down. Um, and it'll be under our Spotify episode description. So oh, that's so cool. Yeah, well, we'll see what we come up with by the end. <laughs> Spur of the moment Q&A. Uh, <laughs> So moving uh, back to you, Liv, you have a website too, which is really awesome. Um, you did mention that. And by the sounds of it, you've been working overtime. So on your website, www.liveperfusion.com, you provide a wealth of information and resources for aspiring perfusionists. What tools do you believe they need to get started on their journey towards a career in perfusion? Can you give us a sneak peek into your insights? Yeah, thanks Tiff for mentioning the site. So my goal is to provide um, a comprehensive guide for individuals with varying knowledge about perfusion, but a shared passion for excellence and a desire to join this remarkable field. To answer your question, I think navigating the path towards a successful career in perfusion, aspiring perfusionists should equip themselves with a combination of knowledge, skills, and a strategic approach. And my goal is live for Live Perfusion to serve as a resource hub, including study materials and practical tips to aid aspiring perfusionists in their preparation. It's designed to be a one-stop kind of shop destination for individuals keen on not only understanding the complexities of perfusion, but also excelling in their pursuit of this career. That's really awesome, Liv. I already know a bunch of people that would benefit from what you provide on your website. But now let's focus on the application process for perfusion school, a crucial step for aspiring perfusionists. So getting into perfusion school can be competitive, as mentioned in your book, and as we know as perfusionists, uh, what strategies or tips can you offer to help applicants increase their chance of being accepted during this competitive process? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when it comes to tackling the competitive application process, there's a couple key strategies that can make a big difference. 
First, emphasize relevant experiences in the application that can set you apart, whether it's volunteering, internships, any hands-on work in healthcare. Showcasing how these experiences have shaped your passion for perfusion are really compelling. And express a genuine interest in understanding the profession. And also make sure you've done your background work. Show that you already understand kind of what the daily work might look like as a perfusionist. This not only includes knowing the technical aspects, but understanding the teamwork, adaptability, and critical thinking required in the field. And lastly, a killer personal statement is your secret weapon. Uh, use it to convey your unique story, what drew you to perfusion, and how your background has prepared you for the rigors of the program. I think showcasing your enthusiasm and commitment goes a long way in convincing admissions committees. These are fantastic points. And at first glance, someone might think that's asking a lot of an applicant to come in and know so much about the field right at the onset. But when you look at the stats for our profession, 21 programs in the entirety of the United States servicing a field with approximately 4,000 active board certified perfusionists where, quote, the programs vary in structure, structure, curriculum, and certification level, as well as required prerequisites like BLS, ACLS, and other specific prerequisite courses like medical terminology for some schools, but not all schools, it starts to make more sense. And when you look at the ABCP's stats that they put out every year, most people start and stay within their profession for well over 20 years. So what are your thoughts on the potential for a common app for perfusion schools similar to AMCAS or the Centralized American Medical College Application Service? Mel, that's really interesting. I think the idea of a standardized application for perfusion schools, like you mentioned for med schools, that's really intriguing given the diversity and how the programs function, what they look like, how many students they accept, their curriculum, their certification levels, a common application could definitely help streamline this admissions process. Say, just upload your personal statement to this app and it'll go out to them. That'd be so much easier than what I did. <laughs> I do think though, it would be essential to consider the unique aspects and the required special requirements for each program. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really interesting. I think it's really fascinating that there's so many differences and yet everyone's coming out and we're doing similar jobs. You're going to be a perfusionist. It's not like you're going to come out and be a PA in dermatology or a PA in cardiac surgery where that's so different. It's a conundrum that there are so many differences between the perfusion schools. And yet there are still gaps that Tiff and I can get on our soapbox about very quickly, <laughs> like the need for a PhD program that would provide a well-rounded candidate to perfusion who's interested in QAPI initiatives. You don't need everybody to do research, but you might need one person on your team that's really committed to research and looking at statistics or a dual CCP MHA, somebody who can cross that divide into healthcare administration and come back to perfusion and advocate on our behalf a little bit better. But in the preface of your book, you write, consequently, many deserving individuals are compelled to fend for themselves, undertaking an arduous journey of trial and error, often resulting in missed opportunities and lost potential. So it's not uncommon for individuals to go through more than one application process before being accepted to a perfusion school. And some of these individuals end up being top performers in our field. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So as you mentioned, it's not uncommon for individuals to navigate multiple application cycles before securing a spot. 
this journey has a lot of trial and error in it. And I think due to that, this leads to missed opportunities and untapped potential. But I do think that some of the individuals who endure this process end up becoming top performers in our field. It's their resilience and their determination forged through the hardships of repeated applications. And I think this cults cultivates a unique strength that they have. They have tenacity and passion to their work that sets them apart. It's a testament to the idea that the journey to becoming a perfusionist is it's not just about academic prowess, but it's also about perseverance and a deep commitment to excellence. Amen. So for those who have faced academic challenges during their undergraduate years, would you recommend retaking courses with poor grades? Or do you believe the applications to perfusion school are considered holistically? Yeah, Tip, I think that's a great question. In my personal experience, I think perfusion school applications are generally considered holistically. Admissions committees understand that academic journeys have their ups and downs. While retaking courses does demonstrate a commitment to improvement, it's equally important to showcase your overall dedication to the field through relevant experiences, skills, and a genuine passion for excellence. The holistic views definitely allows for a more comprehensive evaluation of an applicant's potential. At MUSC, where Liv and I went, the interview date included a range of modalities to assess prospective candidates, including time spent with students who also interviewed the candidate in a sit-down, student-run interview with a standardized rubric with a Likert scale scoring. It included time spent touring the facilities where the interviewee could ask current students questions, and it included a separate interview with the program director and professors in, to me, what was one of the most intimidating moments of my life because they conducted in the research conference room. But I feel like it's important to mention that this is just one school, this is one application that you put in, but a lot of thought goes into how you assess a, a potential applicant for their candidacy in a position in a school that can be rigorous. You don't have as much ratio of professor to student, so sometimes you have to be a bit of a self-starter. Yeah, Mel, I'm glad you brought up our inter interview day. If I could share a little personal story with what happened that day. I was down in Charleston with both my parents. We were staying in some friend's condo in Mount Pleasant or something down there. And I woke up that day. I had, it was a short trip. So I brought one dress, one pair of shoes, ready to go. I wore like short heels. But as we were leaving this condo, my heel got stuck in the stairs and broke. No. And so it was like almost like a flip-flop with a heel. And I had to just persevere. Like, that was it. I only had that in flip-flops. I had to wear the broken heels to MUSC's interview. <laughs> oh, no. on, that was like, as you mentioned, the student-run tours, they, they were on cobblestone. <laughs> and I was just like, if I could just make it through this day without falling. Oh, my gosh. It was crazy. Oh, and like you said, God. meeting them in the research conference room, I don't know if I've ever been so intimidated <laughs> in my life. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That That's room gives be... me nightmares. <laughs> Yeah, way to improvise and push forward. I, I would naturally feel like, oh my gosh, this day is over. This day is done with. <laughs> I had no choice. That was we were like flying out that afternoon. It was this is it? <laughs> oh my god! For you, that's a good enough story to kind of show how you can be adaptable and still have a positive mindset for the day. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to talk about perseverance, let me, let me tell you, anybody who thinks, oh, it's a girly thing. Okay, I dare you to go put on broken heels and walk no, through cobblestone for yeah. two miles. It was, And it wasn't a short walk. They literally, no. 
You had to walk to different buildings. They showed you the horseshoe, where the library was. Like, it's a far amount yeah. of walking. And the whole time, it's an extension of the interview where you're being asked more questions, yeah. but in an informal setting. So to have that on top of everything else mm -hmm. that you had to go through. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. oh look at you now, writing books. And yeah, that's how times. you know. Thriving, thriving, <laughs> amazing. I mean, I hear so many great things about MUSC. I do have a little bit of FOMO here and there. I went to University of Arizona. It was a very small okay. school, but Dave Fitzgerald is just awesome. I've gotten to know him more, and I know that he's definitely one of Mel's mentors and a lot of people's mentors. So, very cool. Yeah, Dave made that first episode, by the way. I feel like he he set an impossible standard for everybody after that. <laughs> yeah, there's a good trend on our podcast for MUSC grads and leaders. Mike Culligan was one of my alums. So we're doing good for University of Arizona and MUSC. We're representing. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's not on purpose either. It's just my happenstance. So I guess moving on, um, another important aspect for aspiring perfusionists is choosing between certificate and master's programs in perfusion. So if I counted correctly, about 15 out of 21 academic perfusion programs offer a master's. What is your opinion on this? Do you think programs should consider transitioning to a master's degree? Yeah, so I think the choice between the two depends on individual career goals and also the evolving demands of our field. As healthcare continues to advance, having a more extensive academic background, such as having a master's degree, can be beneficial for staying competitive and contributing to the growth of the profession. Um, I do think programs should consider tra transitioning to master's degrees to align with the broader trend in healthcare education. Um, this shift reflects the increasing complexity of medical procedures and the need for healthcare professionals to possess advanced knowledge and skills. That was amazing. There's no better way to have put that with the changes that are going on in cardiac surgery as an industry itself, especially with the technology. You just don't have that option anymore where you can show up and just hone your skills in, in your silo and end up with a good result for the patient, especially with the amount of devices that come and go. But overall, this was a question that was brought up and a process that really un recently underwent changes for physical therapy as well. So perfusion is not the only place that's being asked this question. It's not the only mid-level provider that's being scrutinized at this point for tracks for entry. Physical therapy transitioned to three-year doctorates from their masters. And depending on the state that you work in, a DPT can now treat and prescribe rehabilitation methods to specific patient populations without needing to be fielded through an MD or medical doctor. It depends on the patient's presentation. It's also very much dependent on the state, but the price of their education did go up significantly with the increased degree without a commensurate salary raise, in my opinion. So similar to Perfusion's GRC committee or through AMSECT, who strives to prevent scope of practice infringement through perfusion licensure in various states, doctors also have a similar committee highlighted on the AMA website and they work to maintain certain boundaries for direct patient care from mid-level provider encroachment. Interestingly, they cite that the increased levels of education for mid-level providers did not improve access to treatment for patients as a primary reason why mid-level providers should really consider 
more bureaucratic tape or hurdles to incoming professionals if they still need to feel that patient through an MD for care. This may not be exactly how it works, but this is a general understanding of the current state within healthcare, especially within cardiac surgery, but also outside of our silo of cardiac surgery and in other areas as well. That's a good point, Mel. And I know that the whole master's versus certificate debate can be a heated one, but I do feel pretty passionate that improving standardization through the profession may help cascade perfusion leaders in middle management out of the OR and into healthcare administration. And hopefully I don't get on too much of a soapbox here, but I do feel that standardization within the perfusion profession is crucial for ensuring high quality patient care and effective leadership within the field. By establishing and promoting consistent standards, the profession can enhance its its reputation and ensure that perfusion leaders in middle management roles, particularly those transitioning from the OR, to healthcare administration have a solid foundation to work from. One improvement from that could be quality patient care, standardization and perfusion practices, techniques and education ensures that patients receive consistent evidence-based care regardless of their location or healthcare facility. The second point could be safety and risk mitigation. Standardized protocols and procedures can help reduce the risk of errors and complications during perfusion procedures. And lastly, of course, education and training. Standardization extends to the education and training of perfusionists, ensuring that academic programs maintain consistent curriculum standards, prepares graduates with the necessary skills and knowledge for various roles, including middle management and healthcare administration. Um, And to ensure the future success and growth of the perfusion profession, I think it's essential to expand academic perfusion programs across the country including the development of PhD programs in perfusion science. This could have potential benefits like research and innovation, education and leadership, as well as enhanced credibility. I know that offering a PhD program could then trickle down and help our profession expand in number with different um, academic institutions being put into place. I do feel that just increasing the scope Um, of education for our profession can um, have an overall trickle-down effect and expand our profession as we know it. I do feel very strongly about it. I think especially now that I'm working right now to expand Texas Children's Hospital to Austin, and I'm running into a lot of hurdles um, asking for things specific to our profession. And I think that people just don't know um, what perfusion is and does even at the higher levels. And so I'm constantly having to educate. And I think if we had more of that standardization, I think we could get further as professionals in our field, but I digress. (laughs) I think you brought up some really good points. And I love that you were talking, you weave in middle management and the need to go to the higher levels to have these discussions in order to better resources for your department at the at the front of the line for the patient or the front lines. And something interesting that you had brought up in the last time we had talked about this episode was how a lot of perfusion leaders are shuttled underneath nursing. And it's I know it's been an ongoing discussion. It's one that's higher level than what I'm privy to in my position, but I know that there is that conversation that's also going on in the background. Like, is that the right 
the right silo to put us under? Is there a better silo that we could be categorized underneath for management, for approval, for devices, for technology, for better patient care? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think something we've run into is our scope of practice is outside the OR. Like I mentioned, it's in the units, it's everywhere in the hospital. I mean, if there's a code call, a perfusionist is running to any unit with an ECMO circuit. So I feel like our umbrella, def- like we are under the cardiac surgical umbrella, but I do think we are, we stand alone on our own. I don't think we function, we can function underneath another limb of it just because our scope is so large and we just can, we touch every department in a way. I guess one of my additional questions in regards to that is, what do you think? Do you think we should grandfather in certificate program graduates? I wonder how this would work if we were to transition into that master's profession. Yeah, Tip, I think that's a really interesting and very very timely question. The move towards acquiring master's degrees in perfusion reflects the evolving landscape in healthcare. And when considering whether to grandfather in certificate program graduates, I think it's a balancing act. On one hand, these individuals have such valuable experiences and skills that should not be overlooked. On the other hand, ensuring that future perfusionists are equipped with the latest knowledge and training is crucial. Perhaps there should be a phased approach offering additional training or a bridge program for certificate graduates could be a way to strike that balance. I know some schools such as MUSC and Jefferson already offer such a path. That's awesome. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on that. But now let's talk about the practical side of pursuing a career in perfusion. Many students aspire to shadow perfusionists to gain insights and experience, but it can be challenging to secure such opportunities. Yeah, Tiff, that's a strong point there. Many schools require OR observation for review of their candidacy for perfusion. And it's one of the most difficult components to the application for somebody without a connection. I think only a few of the university-based programs had or have a process for prospective applicants to come in and shadow through their affiliated hospital. I'm not sure if that's still the case. I've been out of school for about three years now. And with the inflation and number of applicants to spots available, if most candidates needed to utilize that resource, I'm not sure the hospital would be able to comply. So how would you recommend going about pursuing a shadowing opportunity if you're not yet a perfusionist, Liv? Yeah, it's a great question. In terms of pursuing shadowing, uh, networking is everything. I encourage applicants to reach out to local hospitals with cardiac programs, try to get to their hospital human resources departments, or if you can find a perfusion department head contact, reach out to them, express your genuine interest in the field, your background, your passion for learning. It could also be helpful to attend relevant medical conferences or events where you can meet professionals in the field. Personally, I love using LinkedIn. I feel like so many perfusionists are on there and they're active and contributing to each other and communicating, networking, and reaching out to someone with a well-crafted message, expressing your interest and intent to shadow can definitely open doors. I want to just throw in there before we go to the next question too, that Facebook recently, there's been um, a little bit of a movement. So on LinkedIn, there's a few groups related to perfusion. There's like a mechanical circulatory support group. There's like an ELSO for ECMO group. 
And then on Facebook, there's Women in Perfusion, and there's a few other ones as well. So that's also something that the prospective candidate can look into on Facebook and on LinkedIn to try to join those groups and, and be a part of that conversation. Yeah, that's a good point, Mel. And just to add another layer to this, I know COVID created a lot of challenges for us to be able to shadow people professionally. Do you feel that these shadowing opportunities have become more difficult post-COVID? Yeah, there's absolutely no denying that shadowing opportunities and perfusion have faced challenges. Hospitals have implemented strict safety measures, limiting or even suspending shadowing programs to ensure the well-being of patients. These restrictions have made it more difficult for aspiring perfusionists to access firsthand experiences. It's definitely a dynamic situation, but I don't think it's impossible to navigate. It just takes a little legwork. Just before that, too, also to the prospective applicant, I know it may sound daunting, but don't count yourself out if you're missing one or two pieces to your application. Like, don't let lack of shadowing keep you from applying. Apply, because if you're in the middle of applying, your paperwork would be filed with a program director at a perfusion school. So as you start networking while applying, it's easier for you to have someone as a point of contact that can verify that you are a prospective candidate that's serious about perfusion, which might let your foot get into the door a little bit faster. And that's how I got into shadow. I started calling hospital after hospital in the New York area and I wasn't getting much luck before perfusion school, but I had applied. So my application was filed and it was under review. So when I finally called Columbia, I, at first I didn't know how to say it. This is a funny story. I actually called Columbia University uh, Medical Center and it was the only hospital where if you call the main line and you say, I'm looking for perfusion, they said, oh, okay, hold on one second. I'll connect you. Everyone else was like, the what? The who department? <laughs> Does that That's impressive that have they the knew. right number? Yeah, they knew <laughs> right off the bat from their main number. Are you selling impressive. me perfume? Like what? Yeah, literally. <laughs> right? The perfumologist. <laughs> and when I got a hold of them, oh my God, the conversation couldn't get more cringe than how it went. I was like, hi, my name's Melissa. I'd like to schedule an appointment to come watch a case. And the perfusionist was like, excuse me? Like that's not really how it works. It's not really open to the public. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shoot, like I got, I got ahead of myself. Like I'm a prospective candidate and I'm, I have applied to so-and-so's program. I won't name names. And they told me that I needed to shadow to complete the application. So they were able to call that program director and verify that information with my name, with some personal items of information of myself. And that was the reason why it was easier for me to go into shadow because now multiple places had a paper trail of who I was and I could sign the non-disclosures and whatever else is needed, the confidentiality and get walked in to watch a case. So don't let your fear of whether or not you'll be able to shadow keep you from applying and don't let the fear of applying keep you from calling a hospital to shadow, vice versa. No, I think that's really important. Thank you for sharing your personal story. How I got to shadowing perfusion was I live in South, well, I'm from South Jersey and there's just not a whole lot of heart surgery going on down there. And I had no idea how to get in touch with a hospital. So I went on perfusion.com because I was like the only website I knew about. And there was like a forum there and I made a little post. I was like, hi, I'm in Jersey, Philadelphia area. I would love to shadow someone, blah, 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 blah. Posted it. Maybe the next week I get a reply from a friend of mine now, Nicholas Padilla. He's the chief at Christiana Care in Newark, Delaware. And oh my God, like, I know you him. You haven't heard anything. I love Nick. He's a great guy. 
he's like, just like Dave to me. They're just such great mentors. So I went down there for a few days and it was, he was the only way I had in. I don't know what I would have done if he hadn't reached out to me, but it just goes to show like, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I just thought if I just keep trying, something good will come of it. That's incredible. Yeah. Nicholas Pedia think- is amazing. I actually did per diem with him for a little while. <laughs> yeah. He's great. Perfusion is a very small community of people. So chances are they know somebody who could connect you with somebody. Like you said, you should just ask and hopefully you shall receive. Um, but as we switch gears and dive a bit deeper on the topic of perfusion program acceptance, what elements do you believe make up a strong personal statement for aspiring perfusionists? Great question. I found that a compelling personal statement should have three things, passion, purpose, and relevance. I would suggest start by expressing your genuine interest in the field and where that passion came from. Share personal anecdotes or moments that sparked your fascination with perfusion. I also suggest addressing how pursuing a career in this field aligns with your personal long-term goals, whether it's taking care of people, improving patient outcomes, or a personal mission Conveying a sense of purpose adds a lot of depth to your personal statement. And make sure it reflects who you are, your genuine voice. Admission teams are looking for authenticity and a clear sense of who you are. That's really great advice. So what qualities or experiences do you believe set successful candidates apart from the others? Yeah, you're really hitting these questions hard, Tiff. Another great one. (laughs) I've observed that successful candidates often possess a combination of passion, resilience, and a genuine curiosity about the field. A strong foundation in biology is undoubtedly essential, but beyond that, demonstrating a commitment to continuous learning and adaptability really stands out. As Mel and I mentioned earlier, learning doesn't end when you graduate, it's every day. And I think successful candidates often have a solid understanding of even the interdisciplinary nature of perfusion. Effective communication and collaboration are so vital as you're an integral part of a healthcare team and Highlighting experiences that showcase teamwork and effective communication skills can really be impactful. Very good point, Liv. So let's dial things in on a more personal experience level. You attended a perfusion program yourself. Can you tell us why you chose the school you did over the others and what factors played a role in your decision? Yeah, of course. Choosing a perfusion program is a pivotal decision. My journey led me to MUSC. What drew me in was their stellar reputation and how much they emphasize hands-on experience. The school's commitment to providing a comprehensive education and a very robust clinical focus aligned just perfectly with my aspirations. The faculty's expertise and the school's connections in the field also played a crucial role in my decision. It was about finding the perfect blend of academic excellence and real-world application, and MUSC offered just that. Also, I'm not going to lie, Charleston is absolutely beautiful, and I didn't mind living there for a year or so. I agree. I agree. I love Charleston. I remember, just a side note, when I went to interview, I had decided I was going to interview for SUNY Upstate, and I was going to apply to MUSC, and I went to MUSC. My interview for MUSC was first, so I went down there. Spectacular weather, a beautiful sunny day, couldn't have been better. Stayed at the Vendue, which is downtown. I splurged a little bit. Had a rooftop bar. Yeah, like, I wanted to just enjoy (laughs) my weekend. Yeah. And then I get home, and then I have to pack again for SUNY Upstate. And there's a snowstorm. My dog in the background, I can't. There's a snowstorm. 
like, and then I had my dad drive up with me for the weekend and we're like combating the snow all the way up there. I get out of the car, it's freezing. And I just take one look at him. I'm like, I'm not built for this. Oh my God. Like, I don't think I can go to school here. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It was a sign. sauce. Yeah. But Liv, you talk about in your book, when you quote the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is projecting a 9% growth by 2029 for perfusion-related occupations, which happens to be faster than the average for all occupations. Since our graduation in 2020, I think the class size has gone from 24 to 30 and now offers post-grad masters online to international students and has gone from two professors, one being the director, to three staff members, not including the division director. Yeah, Mel, this is so important. There's definitely a delicate balance in the system of maintaining enough perfusionists without saturating the field. And if I could turn the tables and ask you guys a question, do you think the ABCP or some governing body needs to manage the size of perfusion programs? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm actually not sure if it's considered under the purview of ABCP to be allowed to set maximums on student to position ratios and enforce it. But I do think that there is a space for program directors to form an ad hoc committee or a standing committee to have that discussion to make sure that we don't oversaturate the field just because you can't do anything else with our degree. You can only do perfusion. But there's also this new space here where the specialization with more devices hitting the market could open up some different types of positions for perfusionists, which could allow for an expansion in the number and size of students that are graduating each year. I think we might start to see a rise in an ex vivo perfusionist, maybe somebody who's contracted by a company like Transmedics, who's a perfusionist, but only goes on donor procurements, or maybe there's an ICU perfusionist who works only on ECMO bedside and can help with the management and the progression of that patient off of that extra support instead of just coming in to check the device and and query the, the device for performance. The heart failure specialist perfusionist who maybe might concentrate on heart transplantation and modalities to help with that, or the aortic perfusionist, but especially the ongoing conversation for pediatric perfusion and their separate fellow designation, it could hearken a potential mandatory fellowship in the future. I think our patient population is also expanding. We're seeing expanded uh, criteria for patients, especially in TAVR. So now you're, it used to be that your TAVR patients were only non-surgical candidates. And now we're looking at lowering the age for the potential candidate for a TAVR in TAVR, a valve in valve TAVR. So I think that because we're expanding our patient population, I only see our services being needed more in the future. Okay, before I say this, is there too much background noise on my end? There's zero background noise on your end. Okay, the Phillies game just started, and I know my boyfriend's downstairs. He just texted me saying, sorry, I think he got, like, fired up. (laughs) (laughs) Just let me know. That might be half of the fun. I know Phillies fans are really into their game. Is it the Philadelphia Eagles? No, the baseball team, the Phillies. Oh, the baseball team. Yeah, we're in playoffs, baby. I'm a Swifty. I was going to (laughs) say, if it's about Travis and Jason Kelsey, I'll take it. (laughs) That could be a whole other episode. We could. (laughs) I had a question. In your book, you mentioned uh, the possibility for advancements in perfusion to remote perfusion. I was just curious if you knew much about that or if you've known anyone that's working towards dialing in perfusion from a remote site? 
Right. I think that's a great topic. I think that's going to ha- something's going to happen with that in our conversations about art- artificial intelligence and as AI makes its way into healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if we'll be like running a pump from another room or from home, but um, in my current facility, uh, we have dashboards in our office that can show us um, if someone's on pump, um, what if they're on bypass, how long, if they're clamped. Uh, we can also see all of our ECMO patients, what they're flowing, what their sweeps at. So we're, we still interact with the unit a lot, but we can have a better visual monitor from just remotely in the office. And I think that just goes again with um, advances in technology. And I think we're going to see AI make its way into healthcare, maybe in perfusion. Maybe AI can help us generate better protocols or even do work with um, goal-directed perfusion, GDP. What are our best practices? I think that'd be really interesting to see with all the data that we can collect through, say, spectrum pumps, put that through AI and see what comes out. Oh, yeah. No, that's awesome. I love that you mentioned that because we have in our previous episodes, we've hit a little bit on it. The world isn't ready for full AI yet, so we haven't gone too much down the the rabbit hole, but <laughs> maybe someday. But that's very insightful. Um, thank you for including that in your book. So. I guess to get back on track, what steps did you take to prepare for your specific perfusion program? And do you have any personal recommendations for prospective students to do the same? Yeah. um, So I took a multifaceted approach when preparing for a perfusion school. Um, I delved deep into understanding the core concepts of cardiovascular perfusion, or at least I tried to, i.e. through the blue book that I think now just came out in its third edition. I think it was the second Mm -hmm. I might be wrong on that. I knew a new one. Blue book is like Bible. But other than that, I reached out to alumni from MUSC's perfusion program to gain insights into their experiences. Their perspectives were invaluable in helping me shape realistic expectations. And to answer your next question, for prospective students, I'd recommend immersing themselves in the world of perfusion early on, attend informational sessions, connect with us, and consider shadowing. This demonstrates your interest in the field and provides a firsthand look at what you're potentially getting yourself into. And finally, I'd say stay curious and very open-minded. This field is very dynamic and a willingness to learn and adapt is so imperative. Embrace your challenges, see them as opportunities for growth, and don't hesitate to seek guidance from mentors and experienced perfusionists. What was done that helped you? You're doing that for the next candidate coming in your book and the ending to each of your didactic subsections on background disorders and disease processes first for you to have included that gives the reader a resource to reference potential topics that they could further research. And on top of that, you included the risk factors that the STS scores about each disease process. You've paved a clear path on how this disease presents, what we read in the H&P each day, and then you brought it back around to remind everybody at the end of each subsection that the point that cardiac surgery is a team sport and the goal is to improve patient outcomes and quality of care. I really loved that. Oh, thank you so much, Mel. So wonderful to hear your feedback. Highlighting how these diseases present in practice and connecting it to the daily clinical work in the HMP is a great way to bridge the gap between theory and real-world application. And I completely agree, emphasizing that cardiac surgery is a team effort with the ultimate goal of improving patient outcomes and the quality of care is crucial. It really reminds us of the collaborative nature of healthcare and our shared responsibility to deliver the best care possible. 
Liv, I'm sure our listeners are also curious about the research opportunities available at your perfusion program. Could you share any insights into the research opportunities and perhaps if you're comfortable, any positives or negatives you'd be willing to share about your school? Yeah, definitely. Uh, regarding the research opportunities at MUSC, it's a busy aspect of the program. There's a robust commitment to fostering research initiatives, allowing students to delve into cutting edge advancements in perfusion. Positives include access to state-of-the-art facilities and collaboration with experienced faculty. The school really emphasizes pushing the boundaries of knowledge, and I find that really commendable. Um, on the flip side, like any program, there might be challenges, perhaps in terms of the intensity of workload, balancing clinical and research commitments. I'd say overall, MUSC offers a very enriching environment where passion and excellence converge and really sets the stage for a fulfilling journey in perfusion. This is definitely such a good overview of MUSC. I couldn't agree more with everything that you brought in there. It was also a lot of the reasons why I chose MUSC as my school as well. And I'm so grateful for that decision every single day when I go to work. I couldn't have made a better choice for myself in my life. But choosing the right perfusion program is a really big facet to your per your career. It really is what gets you started. But as an industry, research has not been able to convert into the role responsibility or the salary range for us, which is really fascinating because it's definitely necessary in my belief. Liv, you said it best when you point out that continuing education is costly, demanding, and time-consuming. We don't have the same resources as medical doctors. Only a small percentage of graduates from perfusion school continue to have access to online medical library repositories like PubMed or NCBI. That's usually standard for medical doctors or medical students. We're not designated in medical academic centers the same way. We're not usually professors. It's atypical to have a hybrid position with non-clinical hours baked in for research. And only a few positions include research as a role responsibility. I think Stanford and Boston Children's are two examples out of how many listings do we have every day for perfusion openings. And the reimbursement for continued education post-COVID at most centers has been reduced, if not removed. Yeah, Mel, you make an excellent point. In addressing this challenge, maybe it's time for the perfusion committee or community and committees to advocate for more structured roles, increase access to research resources and recognition of the importance of ongoing education. This really could enhance um, our professional development and contributes to advancements in our field. This is a very good point, Liv. And I think it kind of goes back to our discussion on standardization. When I worked at my very first job out of perfusion school at Mayo, I know that they designated clinical research days for us. I know different positions or different institutions value it differently. And obviously it depends on how well staffed a program is and if, if they can afford to give you time for that research. But I also think like it could be our, our opportunity to create more of a a platform to have access to these resources to do this research. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And as we move on, clinical rotations are a significant part of perfusion education. Where did you complete your clinical rotations and what advice would you give to students regarding selecting rotation sites? Okay, so my clinical rotations were at the University of Rochester, 
Napsent Health in Macon, Georgia, Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and where I currently work at the Hospital of the, Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Regarding advice for students selecting rotation sites, I would emphasize the importance of diversity. Seek out institutions that offer a broad spectrum of cases and experiences. This will really help you build a versatile skill set and expose you to different healthcare settings and patient demographics. That's an excellent point that you're making. And I think another part of that too is remembering that when we look at how cardiac surgical centers are scored, perfusion practice may or may not indirectly affect that scoring, but it's not the primary criteria for the scoring. So it's a misnomer to, to say to somebody, oh, you rotated at a top surgical center, but the quality of the true education that is required for a student on a clinical rotation may come from a center that might not be looked upon the same way as one that's ranked quite as high, but it doesn't mean that the education was any less. In fact, there are some centers where perfusion has so much freedom and autonomy in their practice that they can actually start to recruit really high-performing perfusionists because high-performing perfusionists want to have a little bit of freedom in their practice. So they might have they might have a, a better experience that way. So I always found that a little interesting as a side note. I don't know how you guys feel about that. But to move on into the questions, in your chapter on rotational assignments, you talk about transplantation, pediatrics, and ECLS. Some schools have moved to include an exclusive rotation with ECLS, and there has been mixed feedback from students on this move. What are some of your thoughts on this and how rotations may be changing in structure to demand new de to meet the new to meet new demands in the field? Yeah, Mel, that's a great question. It's definitely an interesting development in perfusion education. While traditional rotations cover a broad spectrum, uh, the specialized focus on ECLS reflects the evolving demands in the field. I think this shift could better prepare students for the specific challenges and nuances of ECLS. But as you mentioned, of course, there is mixed feedback. Some students may value the comprehensive exposure that varied rotations offer. I think this provides a more holistic understanding of perfusion. On the other hand, exclusive ECLS rotations are a very strategic response to the growing importance of the specialized area, especially considering its critical role in various medical scenarios. Um, in my perspective, there needs to be a balance here, incorporating de dedicated ECLS rotations while ensuring exposure to other critical areas such as transplantation and pediatrics could create a well-rounded perfusionist. The field's dynamic nature requires adaptability, as I mentioned before, and it's encouraging to see educational programs evolving to meet these new demands. Yeah, this is a great point. I do think it's important for aspiring perfusionists and, and students in perfusion to get a well-rounded perspective of our profession. I think it's important to, to have that education in ECMO and bypass for my institution specifically, Texas Children's, their ECMO program operates pretty independently, but I still, for, for the purposes of myself and my team who are opening this new hospital in Austin, I am making sure that my team is educated in both and, and ready to collaborate with the ECMO team. So I do think it's kind of hard as a perfusionist to let go of that 
I don't think perfusionists love sitting ECMO or love ECMO, but it's also hard for us to let go of that responsibility. So it's an interesting dichotomy there, but I appreciate your perspective. So I guess to move along, is there a different process or requirement for choosing an adult versus pediatric rotation site in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question too. In perfusion, I'd say the process and requirements for choosing adult versus pediatric rotation sites can differ. The selection really hinges on the nuances associated with each. For adult rotations, the clinical exposure probably going to include cabbages, valve surgeries, and other cardiac interventions, really just for the adult population. On the flip side, pediatric rotation sites are focusing on the unique challenges pediatric patients present. These cases involve congenital heart defects, even ECMO support tailored for children. The emphasis here is on understanding the intricacies of pediatric physiology and adapting perfusion strategies accordingly. Uh, I'd say ultimately the choice between adult and ped sites depends on one's career goals and area of interest within the field. Good point. In my knowledge, I know institutions or uh, programs like Midwestern, they have a, a very strict guideline for setting up pediatric rotation sites. You have to put your your request in pretty early and fight for those positions, but um, I'm not sure how it works in every program. Um, but along similar lines, in your book, you talk about transferable skills like situational leadership, decision-making, and critical thinking for success in perfusion school. Do you have any thoughts for our listeners on how they could build these? Absolutely. Building these crucial skills is a journey, and it starts with awareness and intention. For situational leadership, consider getting involved in team-based activities or projects where you can practice taking charge in different situations. This could be anything from volunteering for leadership roles in group projects to joining community organizations. Decision-making and critical thinking often benefit from exposure to different perspectives. Engage in discussions, read widely, and seek experiences that challenge your own personal assumptions. Um, It's about broadening your understanding and learning to analyze situations from various angles. And don't be afraid to embrace failure. It's part of the learning process. It's only through challenges and setbacks that we grow the most. So be open to new experiences, be proactive in seeking learning opportunities, and most importantly, enjoy it. Um, We're all on this journey of personal and professional development. Shifting gears to one of the later subsections of your book on ethical considerations in healthcare is that there is no current standard mandatory oath required of graduating perfusion students the way MDs have the Hippocratic Oath. AMSECT has ethical canons available, but this is not required membership for practicing perfusionists. What are your thoughts on this, and do you foresee our profession developing a standard required oath in the future? Mel, that's a good question. Really delves into the ethics of what we do. While it is true we don't have a standardized mandatory oath like the Hippocratic Oath, The existence of ethical canons provided by AMSECT is a positive step. It really ensures that ethical considerations are recognized and addressed in our field. The debate about implementing a standard required oath is nuanced. On one hand, a shared commitment through a universal pledge could really foster a stronger sense of professional identity and responsibility among perfusionists. It could reinforce the values that underpin our practice. Uh, I think the challenge lies in the healthcare community's diversity of ethical beliefs and practices. Unlike the medical field where the Hippocratic Oath is a deeply ingrained in tradition, creating a singular oath per perfusionist, I think, could be met with challenges relating to individual beliefs and cultural differences. 
Yeah, this could get to be a pretty touchy thing to be applicable to all perfusionists in our profession. At Texas Children's, we have a, an oath of culture, which we implement just throughout our perioperative services group. And I think this just kind of goes back to the lack of standardization in our field. I do think that maybe we could in the future create a simple oath that may apply to the masses, um, but it will take time. Uh, having the the proper structure and standardization available to our profession is important again. And we hit on that a little bit earlier. So, but I think this is a great idea. I, I hope that the future of our profession can move towards these traditions. I love that too. And Tiff, I just got to say, I really admire the work you and your team are doing in building Austin's new program. It's fascinating to see institutions like yours taking the initiative to create their own pediatric heart program. While this reflects the adaptability of the medical field, it also underscores the need for, as you've mentioned before, a standardized approach in the industry. Each institution forging its own path can be both a challenge and an opportunity. On the positive side, customized programs allow institutions to tailor their approach to their patient population's unique needs and demographics. And you might see this in your day-to-day practice now, this flexibility might result in more effective and personalized care for pediatric patients, which is crucial given the intricacies of treating these young hearts. Um, But as you mentioned, the absence of an industry-wide standard can raise some concerns. With a unified framework, it becomes easier to measure and compare the efficacy of different programs quality assurance, training consistency, and benchmarking could become more complex. And also sharing best practices and collaborative research might be hindered when each institution develops its own playbook. Very nicely said, Liv. I appreciate the shout out uh, for Texas Children's. Yeah, it's, it's been a journey. But as we move along this conversation, too, I think to hit on mental wellness in our profession is also really important. I know that in my past, I've taken as much of 40 to 50 to 75% call to sometimes for a whole month, 100% call. And I think that it's so important for us to highlight the amount of time that we actually spend working. And this doesn't necessarily mean you're sitting behind a pump pumping a case. This means that you're on call many days in a row. And granted, you're not in the hospital, but it's on your mind. So I just want to hit on mental health in our profession and the work-life balance or lack thereof. What is your take on support being implemented for perfusionists to protect our mental health? I think this is so important to address. Given the high pressure nature of our profession, mental health is paramount. I think robust support systems are essential. And I think institutions should actively encourage an open dialogue about our challenges, offer counseling services, and stress management resources. Peer support initiatives and regular check-ins could go a long way in fostering a resilient and healthy perfusion community. This is about creating an environment where everyone feels supported in their journey and well-being. I completely agree. Speaking of mental health, I literally (laughs) have been working too much. (laughs) I can't even think. Um, No, I I do think um, this is essential for our teams to make time for counseling for perfusionists um, because 
our, our patients are number one, but we also have to take care of ourselves to take care of our patients. So I think this should definitely be a direction we should head in to foster that care for perfusion employees. So besides your book, are there any other tools you feel are helpful for perfusionist in training or perfusionist applicant? For sure. There's definitely some resources out there that'd be useful for you guys. I recommend joining organizations like the American Board of Cardiovascular Perfusion or even the International Board of Blood Management. Both these organizations provide access to a network of professionals. It's But nothing beats hands-on experiences. I say actively seek out opportunities for clinical observation or volunteer to work in healthcare settings. It's important to remember that the journey to becoming a perfusionist is both exciting and challenging. And I think utilizing some of these tools, as well as some that are listed in the book, can create a well-rounded approach for those navigating this path. This advice is invaluable, Liv. We really, truly appreciate it. I did receive this LinkedIn message. I've been talking a lot about LinkedIn messages, but one of them um, specifically asked this question, and it is, what advice would you give to a high school senior who aspires to become a perfusionist? I love this question so much. And I would say in working with a high school senior aspiring to become a perfusionist, I would emphasize the importance of a solid foundation in science, particularly biology and chemistry, get those prereqs done. Um, I would encourage them to seek out volunteering or shadowing opportunities in healthcare settings. Get a real feel for the profession. What does it feel like to be in an OR? What does it feel like to be in scrubs and the sights and the smells that come with those things? I would also stress the significance of perseverance as the journey to becoming a perfusionist can be challenging, but it's incredibly rewarding. I feel so blessed to have found this field. It challenges me, humbles me, and feels like a gift to me at the same time every day. Well, I can definitely feel the passion uh, exuding through this podcast. You're living your truth, and we appreciate that. So, Liv, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. We're wrapping up here. We've enjoyed learning more about Beating Heart and your insights into the perfusion education process. Before we end this, do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Tiff and Mel, thank you so, so much for having me on here. It's been a fantastic conversation. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to share insights from Beating Heart. For listeners, my final words would be this. Pursuing a career in perfusion, it's an incredible journey. And it requires dedication and passion. Embrace every opportunity to learn and grow. Connect with professionals in the field. And always stay resilient in the face of challenges. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Liv. And for our listeners, you can order the book Beating Heart. It's $19.99 on her website, www.liveperfusion.com. And don't forget the code on pump for 15% off at checkout. We will also include the website in our podcast episode notes for your ease of access. If you found the episode valuable, please subscribe, rate, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back soon with more insights into the exciting world of perfusion. Until next time, stay pumped. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters at gmail.com. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.